We have been in the middle of a series, and we are landing the plane on this series real mature today. And so if you're just joining us today, I'm so glad you're here because you're going to get a summary of the whole series. And if you love it, you can just go online and catch up, and, uh, and you'll be able to kind of follow along right where we're at. If you've been with us for a while, some of you have really enjoyed it. Some of you are like, thank goodness we're getting to the next, the next page. But, uh, but I have really enjoyed this. I hope that you have uh, been blessed as we've been talking. Uh, we started with this tension, this idea that we have a general idea of when things are operating at peak performance. We have an idea of when things are working the way that they should work and are, are actually working at a level that, that they're accomplishing and moving forward and being successful. But when it comes to our walk with God, we don't really know how to measure if we're growing. And sometimes we feel like we had seasons of growth, but now things have leveled off. And how do we push to the next level? Is this as high and as far as we're going to go? Or is there further places for us to be? And so we started unpacking some of these keys to becoming mature as a believer and following Jesus. And if you're with us and you've been trying to make a decision about following Jesus, I'm so glad you're here because this is gonna make a lot of sense to you about what we're talking about when we say follow Jesus. And so the first step that we talked about was what we called spiritual intimacy. And the breakdown was this, that following Jesus, Jesus is a person and requires knowing him and having a relationship with him. And we talked about what that meant. And we talked about how every interaction with Jesus, with people that we see in scripture, he opens with this conversation of, hey, come follow me. And never was it, hey, get your life together. Then come follow me. Hey, go make this right. Then come follow me. It was always wherever you're at, whatever you've been in, whatever you've been doing, from this point on, you can take a step in this direction. And we talked about the beauty of a church, of a body of Christ, where there are people all along their journey, seeing people ahead of them and having people behind them and being cheered for as we all move with symmetry in the same direction to accomplish what God's called us to do. And the invitation is just wherever you're at, come and follow me. The next week we talked about uh, uh, biblical knowledge and how we've been gifted this incredible tool, this incredible resource that for thousands of years God's depicted. This is who I am and what I'm like. And you can know me if you know my word and you recognize my voice. And we talked about this powerful tool of the promises of God made available to us and how incredible it is that for thousands of years we've had access to this information and how silly it would be if you knew that you were entitled to an incredible inheritance and you never read the will. If you knew that you were entitled to an incredible inheritance, an incredible set of promises, an incredible destiny, but you never read the will. And so how important would it be that we know what we are entitled to and who we are? And then last week we pressed in and said, well, what good is it if you know who you are and what to do, but you don't actually do it? We talked about holy obedience. We talked about if you hear these words and you do them, it will build a foundation for your life. And so that's been kind of the journey we've been on as we've been talking about how do we grow and how do we mature. And so today, as we kind of hit the crescendo of that, we're going to cover a couple things. But one of the questions that we asked that we really haven't answered is how do you know if you're growing? What are your measurables? And we measure a lot of different things, especially if we're trying to find out if something's growing or if something's healthy, if something's moving. So I remember the last time I grew... I was 11, I got the chicken pox, I got sick, and after the chicken pox, I grew, like big growth spurt. I turned 12, and I was five, nine and a half as a 12-year-old. I was a big kid. I was the king of all Little League, 150 pounds of rock-solid 12-year-old. They were checking my birth certificate. 
let me play with the other 12-year-olds. And I remember going to the doctor. I was, you know, on the other side of the chicken pox. I had to get checked up and all that stuff. And the doctor's like, he's grown so much. He's going to be huge. How huge is he going to be? Six to six, three at least. And I remember coming back for my next checkup, 13 to 14 years old. I haven't grown at all, but I've got three inches a foot. I went from a size 10 to a size 13 shoe. Three inches a foot. I'm still five, nine and a half. And the doctor's like, he's going to grow. His feet are growing. It's going to happen. There's going to be this giant growth spurt. I remember about my senior year of high school, I'm about 17. Now the only thing that's grown is a couple inches of waist. And the doctor's like, yeah, you're probably not going to grow anymore. <laughs> so we measure things, and we're trying to figure out how they're going to grow. And sometimes we don't know what to measure. Measuring my waistline was not going to tell me if I was going to grow anymore. Measuring my feet did not tell me if I was going to grow anymore. We got to measure the right things. It's hard to know what to measure, though. You've been in organizations. I remember I had a job working for the Park and Rec District in Springfield, and we started a new program for community athletics for kids. And we're starting it from scratch and we're asking questions. What are we going to measure to know if we're doing a good job? What's a good job? Is a good job a lot of kids? Is a good job a lot of money? Is a good job a lot of goodwill and marketing? What's a good job? Maybe in your job you've struggled with what to measure. And sometimes if you and the person that you're working with have a different idea of success and you're measuring different things, you could have the same experience but feel like there's been very different results. It's important to know what to measure. Maybe in your own house, you measure things differently. Those of you that are parents, how do you measure if you're being a good parent? How do you measure the success of your kids? What what are the measurables you care about? Is it how they're doing on their grades? Is it, did they make the team? Is it, do they have a lot of friends and relationships? Do they know Jesus? Are they obedient? Are they respectful? What are your measurables? There's so many things we can measure. So we come to this walk with Jesus. We come to this idea of Jesus inviting us to follow him. And we say, we want to become mature. But it's important that we make a decision then about what are we going to measure? Is it how many scriptures I've got memorized? How loud I sing during worship? Do I lift my hands? Do I kneel? Do I sit? Is it that? Is it how uh, much I give or how much I serve, how involved I am? What am I measuring? What are our measurables? So today I'm going to just try to take us to two places of measurables. I'm going to say, you put the thermometer in here. If you're measuring these two things, you're probably doing okay. Can we do that? So two measurables. Here's the first area that we're going to measure. Actually, before I do that, I want to just make this point. It's okay that we're always under construction. We're always growing. We're always coming from one spot to another. And each season of our life, God keeps working on us and we're measuring new things. And it was kind of funny. Let me just, this was funny. But last week, if you were here, I landed, it's funny, not ha-ha funny like irony, right? Last week, I landed the plane and the last conversation we had was a story about Billy Graham, who uh, was was the most prolific evangelist of our time, uh, like Guinness Book of World Records, number of people. 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel in his voice, right? That's a pretty effective ministry. 
And so I landed the plane talking about him, and then he passed away this week. Went home to be with Jesus, which is really amazing and incredible. He was 99 years old. Success. So I was talking about that with my wife, and her first comment was, don't use me in any illustrations this week. <laughs> that was the first part. Then the second part was, I wanted to talk a little bit about Ruth Graham this week. Because Ruth Graham was Billy's uh, wife, who preceded him in eternity. And I just love this picture. This is uh, her tombstone. So I'm going to give you a picture of her gravestone, grave marker. And look at the quote that she had. Ruth Bell Graham, she passed away in June of 2007. And it says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And I just love that. She actually saw that sign, the story behind that. They were stuck in traffic for miles and miles and miles. And come on, we've been stuck in traffic because we live in an area that's just normal. And there's nothing like construction traffic to just really, I mean, I mean, can we just say, like, if there's an accident, at some point I have some mercy. Like, oh, man, that's really sad. You know, I, I wish your accident would have pulled you off to the side a little bit further, but that's okay, right? <laughs> but I have some compassion. Construction accident, it's just like, why didn't I know? I could have planned a different way, and yeah, I want this construction to happen, just not today, right? And so they got to the end of this really stressful construction zone, and this was the sign, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And she read that and said, that's what I want my epitaph to be end of construction. So, so we understand we're all under construction. And as we're being under construction and God's working on us, we're trying to figure out what are the things that we measure as we're growing? What, how do we know if we're being successful? Because it's hard to measure. So I'm gonna give you two areas to measure for spiritual maturity. The first one I want you to measure is this. Measure this. Live like Jesus. Are you living like Jesus? Are you living a life that models the life of Jesus. And when I read about the life of Jesus, I'm struck by how clear he is throughout this scripture. We've got four books, four letters, four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And I'm struck by how clear he is about what he was here on earth to do. There is a clear mission. There was a clear uh, assignment. And he was committed to living a specific way. He lived with purpose and intentionality. He had a dream and a mission from God, and he knew that his life was supposed to accomplish that dream and that mission. He didn't let anything get in the way of that. You know, I talk to a lot of people, and one of the conversations that I have often is I ask people, what are some of the dreams you have for your life? What are some of the things that God's put on your heart that you want to do and what you want to see happen? And here's what I find. Most of the time, people have dreams and things they've heard from God that are connected to how they're wired and their passions. Maybe they like to draw or write or speak or serve. They have something, they have a talent, and they, they have something of how they're particularly designed. Very seldom, and I'll talk about that in a minute, as someone come to me and say, I don't have any idea what I do or who I am. Most of the time, people have a dream. They have something that they're passionate about, that they want to do. But here's what I find out, is oftentimes, though they have a dream, something they care about, they're passionate about, because the follow-up question usually goes something like this, cool, are you doing anything with that right now? And the next part of the conversation usually looks a little bit more like this, well, I started, but now it's a busy season, and there's a reason, and you know, when I get to the other side, and it's always another season away from doing the thing God's called them with a passion in their life to do. 
And so they start saying, well, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm something I want to do with my life and I want to take it seriously, but I need to push it off to some further date. Maybe it sounds something like this. I'm really passionate about that, Pastor Mike, but I'm going to do that after I graduate. I spent a lot of years in student ministries. After I graduate, I'm going to be someone who shares my faith. I'm going to use my gift, my talents, whatever it is. I just, I got, I'm really busy right now. I got to graduate. After this season, I'm in a sport right now, an activity, and I can't, I can't be there right now. But after this season, I'm going to do that. And then it gets to, after I get that job, right? Right now, it's really tough because I got to pursue this. I'm trying to lock in this job situation. I've got to get that job. I got to make that go. Or it's like this one. This one happens all the time. I got you on that, Pastor Mike. I'm going to do that. But right now, I'm pursuing this relationship. I got to land the person. I got to land them. And after I land them, then I'll do it. But then it's, you know what? We're, we're, we're trying to get kids right now. We're dealing with kids stuff. Then the kids come and it's like, you, I haven't slept in months. Don't ask me for anything. Fair enough. Then it's, you know, my kids, they got stuff going on right now. So after my kids get out of the house, I'm in. Then the kids are out of the house. and say, You know what? This is my last window before retirement. After I retire. Come on now. Then it's, I just retired. I need to play. I got to go do some of these other things. And after, and after, and after. And then we're doing funerals and we're talking about dreams and passions and places that we wanted to take. And I, had, I have to talk about unfinished novels and unfinished relationships and an unfinished life. I don't want to end up at the end of my life and realize I missed my calling and my destiny. And when I look at the life of Jesus and I, and I say, we've got to test, are we living like Jesus? One of the overwhelming themes that I see in the life of Jesus is he was very clear that there was a purpose for him here on earth. And he had to accomplish that purpose no matter what. And every choice and decision that he made was how does this affect my call and destiny in my life? I'll be honest with you, he disappointed some people. Some of us can't disappoint anybody. We know there's a call and a destiny in our life, but another call comes in and someone needs something from us and we put down the destiny and the call in our life because we don't want to disappoint anybody else. But I look at the life of Jesus and he's comfortable disappointing people. Why? Because he knows there's a call on his life. So we're going to break in. If you have your Bibles, you can follow me along. I'm going to be in Luke, uh, book of Luke chapter 2. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 4, and then I'm going to go to John chapter 11. So that's the, that's the cliff notes of where we're headed. But I'm in Luke chapter 2 at the end of the book, verse 41. And uh, we're going to get a picture of Jesus, young Jesus. And I love this because we don't get very much information about young Jesus. We have very limited information. In fact, the only story of young Jesus we get is from Luke. We know that Luke was the historian and Luke went back and interviewed people and we believe that Luke went back and interviewed Mary, which is why we get a story from Luke about young Jesus. And so, uh, and so Luke chapter two, we get a picture of a story of young Jesus. Now there are like, uh, not, it's not urban legends, but like the, the legendary stories of young Jesus that aren't canon, they're not part of scripture and so we disregard. But the reality is we only have a little picture of the life of Jesus when he's young. And I love this picture because he's 12 in the story that we're about to read. So what we know about young Jesus is we know uh, historically uh, when in time he came. We know he was born. We know after he was born that uh, 
there was a, a wicked movement to destroy the competition. And so his family had to flee and go to Egypt. He was actually a refugee in Egypt for a season as they fled a tyrannical government to protect the life of their son. Then we know that he grew up in a town called Nazareth. We know that Nazareth was a no account, no special town, that there was actually phrases and slang in the vernacular of that time. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He was from a place that everybody thought of, of as ill repute or unhealthy. But we knew that about him. And then we see this picture in Luke chapter two, and he's about 12 years old. He's actually 12 years old. And in Luke chapter two, verse 41, we see him as a young boy with his family. And it says this, it says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now the Passover is one day and the feast of the Passover would have been a week long celebration. This is a big deal. This is a yearly annual party. It's about to blow up in Jerusalem. They are going to be getting their grub on, eating, celebrating, partying. They knew how to party. The people of God partied. Okay. They celebrated. They celebrated. It says when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. Now this is pretty interesting because we have a lot of customs and it's important to note right here that Jesus had customs. He was accustomed to, on the feast of the Passover, celebrating in Jerusalem. Now, he's from Nazareth. That's not that big a deal unless you realize that as the crow flies, it's about 65 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. But he didn't go as the crow flies. He hoofed it. With modern roads, it's about 95 miles. We imagine the caravan path that they took was probably about 100 to 120 miles. I don't know if you've ever hoofed it 120 miles in a caravan with your kids and donkeys. So what would happen in this town is the whole town of Nazareth, all these small towns, they would all go to the big city to celebrate this giant event, all these outlying small towns. So Nazareth would empty out Families would come together and they would all caravan together because there's safety in numbers on the roads. And they would take this journey that would take them days to get from their place to the party and the celebration. And there'd be a big feast and then a week of partying. The best I could come up with that was like that here is it's kind of like when the fair comes to town. And the fair comes to town and you guys shut down your lives and go to the fair. And it's like a family thing. Everybody goes, and it's just a big deal. And I love it because I can drive on Meridian because you guys are all on the fair, right? I can go to any restaurant I want because you guys are all eating fair food. I can go to the movies with my wife if I want, if I can get childcare, right? I, all, those things, all those things are going on, and I can go to the fair. It's awesome. But that's what's happening. It's fair season. And for a month, they travel, and they party for a week, and they travel back. It's what they do. They had customs, and your customs are important. Your cultural customs, your faith customs. Listen, our customs are important. God's people have always had customs. It should be part of your custom to come to church on Sunday. Part of our custom, we just come, we gather, we do life together. It's gotta become part of our custom to do life together in small groups and environments. Why? Because Jesus did that. He took 12 guys, started a small group, changed the world. Just saying. I don't like being in a small group. Well, because you don't like changing the world. That's the model he gave us. So it's part of his custom. And sometimes things will fight you for your customs. Just this week, I got a 12-year-old. He's playing baseball. 
Email went out. Can you be at practice 9 a.m. on Sunday? I'm like, no. That's not my custom. I'm measuring that in my kids. Our customs are important. We get together. We take communion. That's a custom. Some of you are like, we didn't take communion this week or this month. I'm like, yeah, we were fasting, and I didn't know what to do with the grape juice. I couldn't, I couldn't process it. I was like, my brain can't figure out what to do with that, so we're just going to do communion after we break the fast. We might do it tonight if I, got, if I get excited about it. Maybe we'll just do it because I'm excited for that. Anyways, we got customs, and they're important. It's okay to have customs. So they travel. They go down there. Verse 43, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, listen to this, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever lost your kid before for like a minute. I've been in Walmart and for like 60 seconds, I don't know where one of my kids is. Do you know what happens to me? I lose my mind. I'm like throwing things off the shelf. Are you hiding behind here? Where are you? Where are you? Right? At about 90 seconds, I'm choking strangers. Answer me. Have you seen my kid? I just want you to understand. These are parents. The feast is over. Jesus stays behind, and they're unaware of it. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company. Read that as caravan, not just the two of them. Remember, the whole town is traveling together. They traveled on, listen to this, for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. Now, I'm not going to be super hard on Joseph and Mary because I'll explain this in a minute. But I got to start with this conversation. It's been a day. And they haven't seen their 12-year-old. And they're not just in a place. They're not at their house and their kid went outside and hasn't checked in all day. We used to be able to do that. Remember? When we were kids, we did that. I don't know if you let your kids do that. I check about every 30 minutes minimum. And I put just trackers on them, whatever it takes, right? I'm up in a crow's nest, like just keeping my eye on them all the time. The world is just different now. But I used to leave the house and just come back when the streetlights came on, right? So it's not abnormal for a day to go by. Now, it's a different thing if we're traveling. If we're on the move and I don't know where my kid is every couple of moments. Now, remember... Everyone has come to Jerusalem and everyone is leaving now. There are massive crowds. Now, here's what I want you to catch, though. This was their custom. They did this every year. It was not abnormal for them, for the kids to just kind of all bunch together, hang out, play with their family, and everybody just leaves at the same time and goes. So I want to have a little mercy on, on the parents here because it wouldn't have been abnormal for them to just not see Jesus playing with his friends and everybody else. Like, that would have just been okay. They do this every year. And can we just be honest, church? They were comfortable with other people investing in their lives in their kids. We don't do that anymore. We're like, we don't want anyone talking about it to our kids, about our kids, right? Don't correct my kid. I'll handle it. Then we don't do it. But don't you do it. But it was normal. It was in their custom. Adults looked after other people's kids with some respect, and they would tell them, hey, your kid, knock it off. Or, hey, good job. Like, they were just part of the family and community. They did life together. They knew each other. They're caravanning. It's been a day, and they realize, uh, I thought you had them. Uh, I thought you had them. Now, listen. I got to be uh, a little bit 
honest. They have other kids. But this is Jesus. You don't think the pressure. Have you read the Christmas story? Virgin birth, angels, shepherds, wise men with gifts, all part of the story of Jesus. They have to know, I care about all my kids, but if I knew I was responsible for Jesus and he's missing, we may have a problem. I want you to get into their mindset a little bit. Let me take you there. As I was studying this, something else jumped out at me. And listen, I can't preach it now because of time, but I will preach it one of these days. And some of you just need to hear this little nugget, but I just want you to catch this. They made it a whole day before they realized Jesus wasn't just cool with the party, where they were going. And sometimes we're just cruising along because it's where we think we're supposed to go. And we haven't checked at all to see if Jesus is coming with us. And you make it to the end of your day and you sit down and go, yeah, I mean, I had a good productive day. I got this done, this done. I traveled this far. I got all this stuff done. And somewhere in the moment of evaluating, am I living like Jesus, is just asking the question, was he even with you today? That'll preach. So I'm going there eventually. But today, I just want you to know, they made it a whole day before they realized they didn't have Jesus with them. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. They've been traveling for a day. I imagine that conversation was tense. I don't know if you ever left the house on a trip and forgot something and had to go back. It's somebody's fault. It's never shared responsibility. It's somebody's fault, all right? Four years ago, my wife's not in here, right? All right, four years ago, we're headed down from Oregon to California for Christmas. We've got uh, our car packed to the gills. There's weather in the passes. We're trying to time when we're leaving. Of course, we're late because we have kids and it's just chaos and we're trying to make it and we got to hit the passes at a certain point or we might as well not even leave. And we get in the car and it's packed to the gills and we got little kids and car seats and everything. And we're loaded up with all the stuff for staying in California plus all the Christmas stuff. And we start driving south from Eugene and we hit about Cottage Grove. It's about 22 miles. And my wife looks over and she goes, did you grab that stack of presents by the door? <laughs> right, because that's my call, my job. <clears throat> I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, we've got to go back. 22 miles. Now I'm traveling, you know, it's 55 in Oregon, so I'm traveling 55-ish, <laughs> trying to make up time. And I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. Just remember what you bought. There's stores in California. You can go shopping, buy them again, and return it when you come back, and we'll be fine. And that's when I get the look. This is a long drive. How long do you want this drive to be? So we turned around, and it was icy cold. I'm having conversations that I'm too wise to say out loud in my head, right? I'm having those conversations, but we get back, we get the gifts and we head back down and we put on our Christmas cheer and we just keep on driving, right? These guys got to turn around and walk. Remember, they got a 90 plus mile journey. Can you imagine you're walking, you're hoofing it, you're heading as far as you can in a day and now you got to turn around and come back? They couldn't find him. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Jerusalem's a big city. It's the big city. Verse 46, after three days. They found him. 
they get back in town. Remember, all of the outlying communities have come to Jerusalem. All of them have left now. The party's over. Can you imagine the fear of people leaving and transferring out of the town and you don't know where your 12-year-old is for three days more? I can imagine the tense and tension. I can imagine Mary telling the story to Luke, trying to choose her words as he writes them down and they become scripture for all of us. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is incredibly powerful, this picture of this 12-year-old. You gotta get into a little bit of the culture and history to fully understand this, but, but this is something that those teachers would do. They would take young, aspiring like men and, and say, these guys have potential for study and for growth, and they would just answer questions. And wise, older uh, uh, people, followers of the faith, would look back at younger followers of the faith, and they'd pour their lives into the next generation. They would answer questions and have conversations with them. It's the way the church is designed to work. And so Jesus is there and he's having conversations, but not only is he asking questions, he's answering some questions for them and they are surprised and shocked. He's not yet reached manhood, yet he's wise. And they're having conversations with him and time I'm sure is just getting away. It says everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. I'm amazed when my 12 year old answers me. (laughs) So when his parents saw him, listen to this. They were astonished. Now, I think Mary was very kind in the word that she told Luke. I'm just going to speculate a little bit here. We went a day this direction. We came a day back this direction. And then we looked for him for three days. And when we found him, we were like, there he is. I don't think that's how the conversation went. It wasn't astonished. I'm just telling you, they're human. And I'm sure they had some very interesting perspective and probably some vocabulary, at least tone. They were astonished. And mama said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Of course. And then look at his reply. Imagine this reply out of your 12-year-old. It's been a lot of days. Uh, why were you searching for me? Why were you searching for me? That's red letters. That's out of his mouth. Why were you searching for me? I don't know the disciplinary stuff that Mary and Joseph used and what they had to do with their raising their kids. Jesus was perfect. There's a lot of ways to speculate there. I just know what would have come out of me would not have been pretty at that moment. Maybe because you're 12 and you've been missing for days. Maybe because we had a plan on when we were supposed to leave, just like we did when you were 11, just like we did when you were 10, just like we did when you were nine, just like we did when you were eight. Every year, we leave at the same time, from the same place, with the same group, and you didn't come. That's why we're searching for you. That's my language. He says, why were you searching for me? And then listen to this beautiful picture. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house. Remember, this was a conversation about Jesus knowing his purpose from the very beginning. And he said, didn't you know, haven't we spent enough time having conversations that you recognize? This is where I have to be. I have a mission. I have a purpose. I have an identity. And I had to be doing that. 
Why were you searching? You should have come here first because you know who I am. Now, the New King James Version or the King James Version uses different language here, and I like the picture of it, so I'm going to share that with you. But it just says this, and he said to them, why did you seek me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Jesus said, all the choices, all the decisions, every place I go, every decision I make, I filter that decision through my father's business. I only do what the father does. I listen to my dad. I stay close to him and I hear his heart and then I do that. What a powerful statement. At a very young age, Jesus saying, that's what I had to do. And I love this, verse 50. But they didn't understand what he was trying to say to them. Listen, I can't even hear you right now. Is basically what that scripture says. <laughs> I can't. I just can't. I know you're giving me an explanation. It's probably important. I'll remember it well enough to let Luke know. But right now, I can't hear this. Verse 51, then they went down to Nazareth. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things up in her heart. She said, this is probably significant. Let me remember this. I'm going to tell that story. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Amen. From a very early moment, Jesus knew what his purpose was. And he stayed committed to that. He was dialed in and he didn't deviate. Living like Jesus, you can't do that. Jesus said, I had to be about my father's business. You can't do that and not be about the father's business. You just can't. You want to know what to measure? Are you about the father's business? Does that factor into your decision-making? Does this line up with God's plan for my life? Does that ever factor in? Look at at the beginning of his ministry. You can turn the page, just probably one or two pages in your Bible, to Luke chapter 4. At verse 42, Jesus has begun his, he's called his disciples. He started doing some ministry. And he's just about to go on this journey. He hasn't really left town yet, and it's about to happen. At verse 42, he says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. He got up early. He went out and prayed. And people started looking for him. The people were looking for him, and they came to where he was. And listen to this. They tried to keep him from leaving them. They said, hey, we like you, Jesus. We like what you do for us. We like having you around. You're sharp. There's something special about you. We like your skill set. We like what you bring to the table. And so we understand that you have something going on, but we would really like you to not do that and to just stay here and said. But he said, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Listen to this, because that is why I was sent and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He launches into his calling. And you've experienced this. The moment you take that step of faith, the moment you step out and say, I'm gonna do this thing for God, there's always someone who says, dude, that's awesome. Just do it this way. Do it here. Do it under these parameters. Don't leave me. But Jesus was comfortable disappointing people to stay on mission. He was comfortable telling people time and time again, listen, I understand that that's very important to you and you're very important to me, but I must do the thing I'm designed to do. I must do the thing God's called me to do. I have to do it. And he starts his ministry that way. Ever ask God why you're here? Jesus says, I know why I'm here. 
He knew that he only did what the Father does. In fact, in John 5, 19, you don't have to go there. They asked him about what he was doing, and Jesus gave him the answer. He says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He says, do you want to know what my father's like? Just watch me because I just keep doing what I see the father doing. I just stay in relationship with the father and I do that. Now listen, some of us have a hard time figuring out our purpose. And Jesus is painting a picture. He's just saying the closer you walk with the father, the clearer your purpose becomes. The closer you walk with the father, the clearer your purpose becomes. He observed the customs. He observed the, the celebrations. He, he, he gathered, he prayed, he stayed in intimate, close connection with the father. He got up early. He went to solitary places. He stayed connected to the heart of his father. So he knew his father's voice. And the closer he stayed to the father, the clearer his purpose became. That's why we talked about spiritual intimacy and it was so important. Because here's the simple truth. It, you can't figure out your mission without knowing your maker. You can't figure out what you were designed to do if you don't know anything about the person that designed you and what purpose they had in mind when they designed you. That's why Ephesians is so beautiful, such a picture, when it says that God created us and we're God's masterpieces, created in God for good works, which he designed us in advance for us to do. It's an incredible picture of a crafter. Scripture says he, we're like the, he's the potter, we're the clay. He builds us, shapes us, molds us, and we have a purpose. Listen, there are things in my kitchen, and I don't know what their purpose are. So I don't use them because I don't know who made them or what for. We actually have a cool thing in our kitchen. I don't know, someone gave it to us as a gift. It's one of those things you would never buy, but we use it all the time because uh, we have kids, and it's an apple core peeler, peeler and core, right? But if you just looked at it, yeah, right? If you just looked at it, it's terrifying, it's got like three spears and, a, and that's like a razor blade sharp thing. And I didn't use that thing forever until I saw Christine use it. And she, 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 you, you pull this part back and you jam an apple on there and then you just crank it and it peels the apple and it cores the apple. Now, if you got little kids, that's like an amazing thing. Even if you're older and you're just like, I like my grapes peeled and my apples peeled and I, you know, I don't know. It does it for you. It's amazing. But you have to know the maker and understand what it's for. And so here's this picture of, I can't figure out my mission if I don't know who made me and what on earth I'm here for. If I don't know what God designed me to do. And you got to catch this truth that purpose and destiny are hardwired into your life. You were designed with purpose and destiny in mind. God's a planner. He's always been a planner. There's always been a plan for the no, I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He's a planner. You're hardwired to be part of something bigger. It's why you feel so awkward when you know, you, with a, you feel, if you feel like the things you're doing don't matter, you start going, something's wrong. There's, not, there's no epic story that I'm part of right now. And you start going, ah, why? Because you know that purpose and destiny, they're hardwired into your life. And God's incredible story for your life is so huge that when you're walking in it, you're like, this just feels right. Purpose and destiny are hardwired into your life. That's the first thing we're going to measure. Am I living like Jesus? Am I staying close to the Father? Am I recognizing that he has a plan for my life? And am I, am I relentlessly pursuing that plan, even if I have to disappoint other things and other places? 
Am I formulating my thought process and my decision-making around the plans that God has for my life? Is that the filter? And measuring that will let you know how you're at on your journey of maturity, how that's going. And I'm gonna give you one more thing to measure. The second thing to measure is this. First, live like Jesus. Second, love like Jesus. Are you loving like Jesus? This is an interesting little paradigm because growing and maturing in your walk with Jesus cannot happen if you are not loving like Jesus. That's why Jesus says they'll know me, they'll know you by your love. I heard a pastor at a conference point this passage out in a different way and it blew me away and I've been exploring it ever since because it's just so good. But if you have your Bibles with you still, I'm gonna jump to John 11 now. And John 11 is this really tender place in the scriptures for, for me and just in history. Because in John 11, Jesus is gonna weep at one point, he's gonna cry. It's emotional, there's a sickness and a death. Now there's an incredible resurrection, but there's just some power encounters that happen in John chapter 11. It's amazing. And it's the story of Lazarus. And some of you have known that story for a long time. And I hope that, that you don't check out on me because I want you to catch just a couple of incredible nuggets here. And I'm not gonna get through the whole story today because time won't allow it. But I want you to see this picture of what loving like Jesus is because I realized as I read this, as I studied this, that I had some things backwards. And here's the danger. If you don't have spiritual intimacy, if you're not connecting with Jesus personally, then sometimes you read the thing and you get biblical knowledge, but you can't put it in the right context. You can't put it in its relational context. And it's just a history book and a storybook. It's good information and it'll be helpful for your life, but it can be life if you know Jesus. And so Luke, or John chapter 11, John says there's a man named Lazarus and he's sick. He's from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And you know Mary and Martha. As a matter of fact, they're pretty incredibly important throughout history. But you know them because there's a big, deep story, the story that's famous for them. Uh, And most of you have heard this story. They're having dinner at Mary and Martha's house, right? And Mary and Martha have a little tiff. They get into a fight because Martha's doing all the work because the guest of honor's here. Someone's got to cook, clean, prepare, make sure the house looks right. I like Martha. I need Martha's in my life. And Mary's like, Jesus is here. I'm chilling. I'm going to sit at his feet and just soak it up. And Martha's like, Jesus, tell her to get off her can and help me. I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not a condemnation of Martha. Martha's gift is beautiful. He just says, right now, there's a moment And there's always going to be stuff to do, but you need to pause and just be with me for a moment. She chose to do that. That was better. What you're doing is good, but that's better. That's why we're coming together tonight. It's because it's better to pause and be at the feet of Jesus. So that's Mary and Martha. You know them. You know Jesus has a relationship with them. He eats food with them. He's hung out with them. Lazarus is sick. He's the brother. Verse 2 This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. If you remember that picture, that's a scandalous story. An expensive bottle of perfume that could have been sold for a month's wages was just anointed the feet of Jesus and mopped up with her hair. As a matter of fact, it was so scandalous that Judas couldn't handle it. It pushed him over the top. And he went from that place and betrayed Jesus. What others saw as waste, Mary saw as worship. So that's this family. 
And Lazarus is sick. And because you've heard this story before, you know this sickness is gonna end in death. You know that this is very serious. So they write a letter because Jesus is in a neighboring town and they know he's close by. They don't wanna leave their brother. So they send it with a messenger and they write a letter. Now, I want you to see what the letter that they write is. Verse three, it says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And this is where the wheels come off for me. Because this isn't the letter I would write. If I was desperate and someone in my family was gonna die and I felt like I had some sweat equity in my relationship with Jesus, these women have fed the disciples multiple times. There's no cell phones, emails. There's no calling ahead. This is 12 dudes and Jesus show up and they drop everything and feed them and show hospitality. Lazarus is their brother. He's been around. They're followers of Jesus. They, they spent a month's wages worth of perfume they anointed him with. They have relationship with Jesus. They're on team Jesus. Lazarus is one of the good guys. If my family member was sick, the conversation I have with Jesus and I had to write a letter to compel him to come. Can you imagine? Man, we really need a miracle. Lazarus isn't gonna make it. Dude, we got a miracle in the bag. We're friends with Jesus. Let's send a letter. That letter would look a little different than this letter. It would probably look like Jesus. I'm not even going to mention how much fish you ate last time you are here. I just want you to know how important Lazarus is. I want you to know he loves you. He cares for you. He's one of your disciples. He's one of your followers. He's faithful. He's critical to the mission of what we're doing in this town. He's very important. He's our brother. We're serving you. And he's sick. Could you come? He's one of the good guys. Maybe I'd tell a, a redemption arc. He was like this, but he met you, and now he's like this. It's awesome. Maybe if there was still some damage there, I'd sell the damage. It's critical that you come now because we're trying to get him to the next place and this could be the thing that breaks it open for him. The story would look different. But instead, they just write this very simple letter. It's short and to the point. And they don't say anything about Lazarus's credentials. They recognize Jesus's credentials. They say, Jesus, Lord, which is a great way to address God. The one you love is sick. They didn't appeal to their leverage in the relationship. They appealed to this reality that they knew. And this is what's crazy to me. Everyone who got around Jesus seemed to appreciate how much he loved them. It's hardly ever the story of how much I love you, Jesus. It's always the story of being astounded by the incredible love that Jesus has for them. And that's what they appeal to. We know you love him. Could you come? Now, this is crazy. This is paradigm shifting kind of love because we don't generally enter into our love relationships that way. They're always some quid pro quo. It's always leveraged a little bit because of what you do. I love you and this is what I do and we give each other back and forth and that's love. But everyone who encountered Jesus seemed to land on this different narrative, this different story about how much Jesus... As a matter of fact, what's hilarious to me is John, who wrote this, actually has the gall to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
He gives himself that as a nickname. There is no indication in scripture that anyone else gave him that nickname. Nicknames are cool when someone else gives you that nickname. Right? When someone else gives you that nickname, they're affirming something in you. They're pointing out an identity thing in you. Now, sometimes people give you lame nicknames. I'm not talking about that. I'm like, good ones, right? They're like, come on, big dog. Come on, tough guy. Come on, Terminator. I don't know. Those are guy nicknames. I don't know what girl nicknames they use, right? Whatever ones you use, ladies, you know, come on, sweetheart. I don't know what nickname, right? I'm just saying nicknames are cool when someone else gives them to you. But John spends three years with Jesus. He's writing his story about that time with Jesus. And when he refers to himself, not once, that would be cute. Not twice, that would be confirming. Not three times, we're getting into annoying land. Not four times, five times in his letter, he says, I'm the one Jesus loved. Now, I don't know if there were fights, there were fights in the disciples, but I don't know if it was ever over this. But it was just normal for people around Jesus to refer to themselves as someone who Jesus loved. It's normal. It'd be like if I'm talking with Chris, I'm like, all right, how's it going, man? Week going good? Yeah, cool. Yeah, I just did things. Hang. Yeah, you know what? You know what's been awesome? Let me, just, let me just tell you something. I'm the guy Jesus loves. You'd be like, okay, that's weird. No, no, like really. I was thinking about it because I was thinking about all the preachers that could have been in this place and, and all of the things that God could, and he sent me. You know, God, he loves me. I think I might be the most loved. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start on my business card. Instead of just, you know, Mike Allison, lead pastor, whatever. I'm going to put Mike Allison, lead pastor that Jesus loves. No, even better, the one that Jesus loves. Nailed it. That would be an absurd conversation, right? You would leave going, we got to find us a new place. Because this guy's crazy. Megalomaniac, Right? But that was normal in their context, in their culture, to interact with others and say, yeah, I know how much Jesus loves me. Why are you telling me this story, Pastor? Right? Because I'm talking about us loving like Jesus. So Jesus gets the news, and I'll unpack all of this passage another time for reasons that are not beyond understanding, but seem beyond understanding. At first, at first take, he delays. But then in verse 5, John eleven five. 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus. That's pretty cool. Like, there's no reason. Like, of course he loved them, right? So why would John make a point of saying he gets the letter and the letter says, the, the, the guy you love, Lazarus, is sick? Why would he have to affirm Jesus loved them? That's interesting. Like, it seems redundant. So then you look at the words. And, you know, we don't have to all be Greek scholars, but we know there's multiple types of love and kinds of love. And Mary and Martha wrote a letter, a line, and said, hey, Lazarus, the one you phileo, the one you phileo, Philadelphia, sister of brother, city of brotherly love, Lazarus, the one who you love, that you're bro. You guys are close. He's awesome. He thinks you're awesome. It's sick. And John says, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But John picks a different world there. He says, agapeo, agape them. 
Agape, unconditional, complete, and total love to the core of identity of a person, believing the best in them even when they don't believe the best in them. Agapeo, self-sacrificing, give my strength away, empower them with whatever I have to empower them. He loved them that kind of way. See, it's easy to love people who think like you, look like you, act like you, vote like you, believe what you believe. But Jesus painted a picture. The scriptures are clear. That's no test of love. The test of love is the people who are in your life. Do they think you love them and care for them based on what they can or can't do for you? Or do they know that you love the core of the identity of who they are because God created them and there's a plan and a purpose for their life. There is a hope and a destiny for their life. And you believe that about them because that's what loving like Jesus is. So you're wondering, how am I becoming more mature? How do I know if I'm growing? How do I know if I'm getting further in my walk with Jesus? Let me ask you this. You get to the end of the day. Can you go, you know what? Am I a more loving person today than I was yesterday? Did I get further, farther? Did the people who came into my circle today, whether they were planned or unplanned, did they experience the love of Jesus? Did I love them unconditionally? Did I love them for their identity? Now listen, we talk about boundaries all the time and boundaries are critically important. There are people who are abusers, users, and the scripture gives us tools on how we can continue to love them, but in healthy ways, create space and boundaries so that we aren't just victims. We aren't called to be that. Come on, we're not victims, we're victorious. But, but, it's never permission to not love them the way Jesus demonstrated love. People who were nothing like him, didn't agree with him, didn't think like him, didn't believe what he believed, and they loved him, and he loved them. And they walked around going, yeah, I'm the one Jesus loves. Yeah, I'm the one. I'm the one Era loves, right? I know she loves me. I know she loves me. Here's how I know she loves me. I know she loves me because I believe, having spent time with her, that even if I tanked, even if I made a mistake, even if I swung hard and missed and I made a, a, a disaster of my life, she wouldn't come in with a condemning heart saying, how could you do that, Pastor Mike? I believe because I know her that she loves me, that she would say, you know what? You guys back off because Mike's a human too and he's on this journey with Jesus and God, his construction's not finished yet. So you back off because there's hope for him. There's a plan for him. There's a destiny for him. And this is a speed bump. I'm not saying that what isn't sin is, is, isn't sin or what is sin isn't sin. I'm just saying he is valuable in the kingdom of God. He is valuable to the heart of God. That's what loving like Jesus does. And so was I more loving today than I was yesterday? Here I go on my journey with Jesus. Did I make decisions about my life and live like Jesus? Did I believe in the purpose and the plan that God has for me? And did I walk and filter my decisions through that? In my interactions with people, did I live in a way that believed in the core and the heart of them and who God made them to be? Even if they're a hot mess right now, did I love like Jesus? Did I contend for the hope of Christ for them? Because if I did that a little bit more today than yesterday, then I'm maturing. Then I'm walking further and farther and I'm following Jesus. And that's the conversation. That's the measurables of if we're doing this thing, that's how we know we're walking in 
the direction of Jesus. Would you stand with me, church? We're gonna close. I hope you have been challenged over the last couple of weeks. If you missed one and you want to catch up, they're on live. Donald does an amazing job getting that there for you. And so you can, you can catch up. But I hope you go on this journey with us and, and, and have a heart to do this. I hope that at the end of this, you feel the incredible hope of wherever you're at right now, you can take a step and start to walk towards Jesus. Maybe you feel like you've been miles away and maybe you feel like you've been cruising along for a long time and now you're stuck. You get into the word and you realize God's purpose and his plan. I mean, I didn't really push on it, but I, I, I've told you, I'm gonna plead with you, but just getting plugged into a, a, a small group, coming to Rooted and doing life together, that's how Jesus did it. He modeled it, that's why we do it. It's not just some idea or some manipulative tool. It's what the scriptures show us the church did. And so we do it. It's important. It's critical. It's huge. And we try to live more like Jesus. And then we see that as we live like Jesus and we love like Jesus, an entire culture just transforms. So tonight we're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to hear from God. We're going to believe things for the future of this church. We're going to believe Isaiah 43, which I read today with intention that, that although the former things were incredible, God is doing a new thing. I have been praying over this body, over this neighborhood, over this community. You know what I learned this week? I learned this this week. I've been here two and a half years. You maybe lived here forever. If you haven't learned it yet, I'm sorry. I'll teach you right now. Do you even know what Puyallup means? Land of the generous people. I didn't know that. And I thought, wow, what an incredible picture of who we're supposed to be, where we're planted. A generous people. What are we generous with? The Puyallup natives, they were, they were generous because they lived in this place where it rained all the time. They were able to grow crops. And, and, and so when people came through, they could be kind and generous with the incredible bounty that God had blessed and provided them with. They could be generous, the land of the generous people. What has God blessed and provided us with? What incredible gift, come on now, has he given us that we get to give away? Have we been a little stingy in our loving like Jesus and in our living like Jesus? Come on now, man. We live in the land of the generous people. Let's do that. How cool would that be? How fun would that be to activate as the body of Christ in this community with just a heart? to generously give away what God has provided for us, to give away our hope and give away our faith and give away the destiny that people can have because we got it so we freely, we got it so freely we can give. That would be amazing. So God, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm geeked out. Maybe I'm too excited. I just, I'm, I'm so pumped for the, the picture that you're giving us of what can be because you're a God of new things. You make all things new. And as we move into this next season, you're gonna give us a, a direction personally in our own lives so that we can begin to follow you in ways we've never done it before. You're gonna give us direction as a church, as a body of Christ in, in ways that we've never seen that is gonna take us to places where we've never been. And it's amazing. Why? Because you're a God of new things. And it's a new day and it's a new time and we trust you. And so you're looking for a people who are following you, growing and, and moving towards you. We're not looking for a perfect people. You're just looking for people willing to follow. So I'm in and we're in and we love you and we're excited. You have permission, change us, challenge us, transform us. Why? So that people who you love 
can know the love of God. We love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.